Father, we sing your praises, the praises of your Son and your Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have granted us this grace that we could know you, that we could know you through your Son who has come to this earth, providing his perfect life as a righteousness that would cover us and as atoning death as a payment that would take away our sin. Lord, we pray that you would move us to worship you today, not just in song, but today in our families, today as we listen to your word, today as we move on to the rest of the season, Lord, we pray that we would be people who worship you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always a joy to be together. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. I understand it is Christmas Eve. You and your families have much to do today. I hope that your plans include coming back this evening, 5 p.m., our, PM, our annual celebration. Uh, we have a candlelight and carol service. And it's styled after something that goes way back, a few hundred years in history. There was a tradition that started called Nine Lessons and Nine Carols. And uh, you can, uh, it started in merry old England. Uh, eventually it made its way to Cambridge, and the King's Choir there of Cambridge have carried it on even to this day. Every year they do a nine carols, nine lessons. And uh, we'll do something similar. I don't think we get to all nine, but we get really close. And it's a special time for you and your family. Hope you make it part of your tradition if you have not already. It's about 45 minutes long, and we take time just to worship the Lord and have a candlelight time. Have you all heard of the beatific vision? The beatific vision? This is talked a lot about in more Roman Catholic theology, but the idea actually goes all the way back to the early years of Christianity. In fact, the notions of the beatific vision permeate all of Scripture. It goes all the way to the Old Testament. The idea that we could, with blessing, happily... See God. Of course, you remember that story of Moses. God is so holy, so bright, so brilliant, so pure, that no human could actually look upon God and survive. His Shekinah glory shines too bright, no human could even look upon Him. But we do have this desire to see God. Moses himself having that desire, and God hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by. It literally means the, the ends of his garments were passing behind Moses, and it was so brilliant and so amazing that when Moses came down, the Shekinah glory was still evident on his face, so much so the people couldn't even look at him. Remember Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes. In verse 8 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's the fundamental idea. You cannot see God unless you are made pure. The hope of a Christian is that one day we will be made not just pure in our souls or our spirits, but that we will be made pure in our bodies as well, being given a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, And now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Meaning we'll be like Christ in terms of purity, and we'll be able to gaze upon the eternal God. So this beatific vision, or beatific vision, it's established. It will not happen in full until we are glorified, we go to heaven, we see God in that way, we're rid of our old mortal bodies that are full of sin. Our spirits have been redeemed now, our, our souls have been redeemed, but our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And our bodies are redeemed and there's nothing left of impurity. And We are made pure before God and granted those resurrected bodies, we will be able to look upon God as He is. That's the full beatific vision. However, the partial beatific vision can be enjoyed by all who gaze upon the Son in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith. We have seen with our spiritual eyes the truth of the gospel. In a way, those spiritual scales have fallen off, and we've been able to gaze upon the truth with pure hearts, hearts that have been purified by the Spirit Himself. This is the way that most people even describe their salvation experience, right? I once was blind, but now I see. There's a moment when maybe they cannot pinpoint exactly, but there's a moment when spiritually they become alive, awake, they become open, and the gospel suddenly makes sense to them, not just a piece of information, not just something that happened in history, but something that means something to them. Well... John is going to tell us this truth in his gospel here in John 1. No one's ever seen God. However, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is indeed God with us. And he has been incarnated. He has been made flesh. By gazing upon Jesus with faith, we can catch a glimpse, much like Moses did. We can catch a glimpse and we can see God even if in part now. That's the beauty of the incarnation. God is so transcendent, and He looks down upon this filthy earth with all of its sin and filth. He has the right and duty to judge and bring justice, yet God has made a way, and we can look upon Him. And it's by gazing upon His Son. That's what John wants his readers to do in this sort of prologue to his gospel, the first 18 verses of the book of John. Well, we've made our way to that final paragraph, that final section that begins in verse 14 and goes down to verse 18. I'm going to read it out loud. Why don't you follow along as I read it? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Monophysite heresy was a false teaching early in the church that Jesus only had one nature, a single divine nature. The Monophysite heresy had all kinds of spin-off false teachings. One of them was called docetism. Docetism, the teaching that Jesus was not really flesh. He sort of looked like a human, but it was a mind trick. It was a, a sleight of hand that God had done to trick people into believing something that they could only spiritually see. Maybe you could touch him, but this was just a manifestation. The the monophysites believed that Jesus did not have human nature. Now, this really undermines what we understand about the gospel. The whole presentation of the New Testament begins with the incarnation of the Son. For one thing, Jesus had to suffer as a human. Jesus had to live in this world as a human. He had experienced humanity, which means conception to death. He had to do this. He had to be punished for our sin as a human. He had to be a human who faced all temptations and victoriously walked away from them. In order to sympathize with us, like Hebrews talks about, he had to be human. He had experienced hardship and pain and temptation and difficulty and death. So to deny the human nature of Christ is essentially to deny the gospel. Likewise, to deny the divine nature of Christ is to deny the gospel. We need the divine to come down and provide a way. We need someone who is completely perfect, totally unmarred by sin. We need God Himself to clothe Himself in humanity so that we could ultimately, spiritually, and then eventually physically see God. Paul said, at the right time Christ died for us, which means not just in a temporal sense, but a spiritual sense, we needed God to come down and visit us, human form, a new Adam, a new federal head, perfect divine person who produces righteousness and pays the penalty for our sin. Well, it was in that first century, scholars tell us, that the Monophysite heresy began to take grip. Gnosticism began to take grip. And so in those early days, Christianity needed a hero to stand up for the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle was that man. John had seen Jesus in the flesh for several years. John had also witnessed the transfiguration of Christ, seeing Christ in His glory with Peter and James. John saw the resurrected Christ. John saw Christ ascend to heaven. John saw Jesus' ministry firsthand, thousands if not tens of thousands of people being healed by Jesus Christ. John saw the person, the compassion, the personality of Christ. John also saw the Son of God placed upon the cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. And most importantly, John had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that he would not simply witness all this history but he would see God. And so John began his book with this unflinching, unblemished, inerrant statement about the person 
and dual natures of Christ, the divine and human natures. He starts his book telling us about the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He is Word, meaning He is the ultimate revelation of God. He is Creator with God. He is God, and as God, in Him was life, and that life was a light of man. His arrival to earth was a light shining in darkness. So John asserts, not only was Jesus with God, not only is Jesus God, not only is He in the beginning with God, not only is He Creator God, not only is Jesus the light of the world, but also, verse 14, He became flesh. John leaves no question in the mind of anyone who would read the plain words that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became man. He destroys the monophysite heresy. He destroys docetism. He destroys adoptionism, another heresy, Nestorianism, monothelitism, Sabellianism, tritheism, if you care about all those isms. But they're all complicated ways of people trying to destroy either the humanity or the deity of Christ. John tells us plainly, the arrival of Christ to this planet is indeed God with us. We sing about it, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Well, in this final paragraph of John's prelude to his gospel, John presents us with two basic facts, and those two basic facts are followed by the results of those two basic facts. So I'm going to give you the two facts and the two results. Maybe you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Fact number one, I've just basically covered it. The Word has come in flesh. You simply cannot get away from the fact that the Word is the Son, the Light, the second person of the Trinity. He is Jesus, and John switches to that name. He clearly is calling Him the Word, and He clearly changes and calls Him Jesus Christ. So we know that verse 17, He's talking about the same person. He's not talking about different people. The eternal God did not shed His deity... Rather, He put on humanity. God the Son putting on humanity, putting on that additional nature, human nature, came down to this earth. Now, by virtue of taking on human nature, His deity is veiled. It doesn't, it's not taken away. It's not reduced somehow or somehow He lost it. But Jesus couldn't show up to this world in His full Shekinah glory. If He did, it would be like, a meteor the size of the sun hitting the earth. It would just destroy. We would all dissolve instantaneously because the bright, holy fire of God. So Jesus shows up as a human, as a young baby. John says it there, verse 14. Look at again there. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, And we have seen His glory... Glory as, a, as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in parentheses, John, here he's speaking of John the Baptist, of course. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This brings us to fact number two. The incarnation is validated. Now, you need to have this clear in your mind, folks. John did not say 
Just believe. I know it makes no sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. It's stupid. But I just want you to close your eyes, cross your fingers, and take a blind leap. Just believe it in your heart. That's not what John says. If that's what John was doing, we have as much evidence for Santa, sorry kids, as we do Jesus. But that's not what John does. John takes us to reality, to history. In fact, you could think of it as John taking us to a courtroom and he's bringing forth witnesses. He's bringing people who would validate the reality. This is what we do in courts every day. We bring forth witnesses. Witnesses tell us, this is what I saw. This is what happened. I saw it with my own eyes. And we take them seriously. We listen to them, and this is what John is doing. John is saying, here are eyewitnesses. I'm going to bring forward to you people who will validate the reality that Jesus is God incarnate. That Jesus is the Word made flesh. Now this is important as we understand the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not like the Mormon faith where they tell you we know that there's no archaeological evidence, we know that there's no historical evidence, we just have all this stuff that happened and you're just supposed to close your eyes and believe it. That's not the Mormon faith like that. This is Christianity which has history and reality behind it. And so you can actually look at archaeology, you can actually call witnesses to the stand, so to speak, and ask them to testify. And that's essentially what John the Apostle is doing. He's calling people to attest a historical fact. Who were the witnesses? Well, witness number one was John himself with the other apostles. That's what John meant when he said, we have seen his glory. We being John and the others, we have seen his glory. More specifically, he's talking about when he saw the transfigured Christ with Peter and James up on the mountain. In fact, why don't we flip over to Luke chapter 9. Flip to your left a few pages. Luke 9. We studied this a couple of years ago in our Matthew study and maybe 10 or 12 years ago in our Mark study. In Luke chapter 9, down in verse 28, we have the story of the transfiguration. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one these days of days anything what they had seen. This, of course, was the transfiguration. This is one of the moments that Jesus' deity 
shone forth just brief, briefly, they got a glimpse of His glory. So Peter, James, and John saw Jesus. The two others that were there, of course, were with Him, testifying about the, what they had prophesied about, Jesus' coming time on the cross. And here is John telling us, back in the book of John, John is telling us about this story. He's saying, we saw His glory. We saw it. And it wasn't just one of us. It was Peter, James, and John. And if they were lying, they probably would have gone out and tried to perpetrate the lie immediately. But no, it tells us they were quiet about these things. And the other apostles would have testified. Yeah, they didn't tell us about this until Jesus was gone. They told us about this moment of transfiguration. They weren't trying to perpetrate a lie. They weren't trying to manufacture something. They were telling the truth. And here they are, John, with his name on this very book, this very gospel. The others would attest as well. It's almost like they had a signed affidavit saying, we saw this. We saw the glory of Christ. We saw the deity of Christ. He is man and he is God. Peter, James, and John, they were the leaders of the disciples. Peter, of course, was the main leader. And there along with Peter and Andrew, his brother. Not sure why Andrew was never included in that top three, but he was included in some, some of the incidents. But those three men, they are the leaders of the apostles, and here they are testifying. And they're telling us, giving us their sworn affidavit that this is exactly what took place. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. From an empirical and historical standard, this is the best evidence that we could possibly ask for. We have sworn statements by, by men who are perhaps the most righteous and good men outside of Christ to ever live. These are people who died for what they believed in. They died for this very truth. And we have their sworn affidavits right before us. Their gospel accounts are stamped with their imprimatur. They're telling us this is exactly what happened. This is precisely how it took place. We saw the glory of Christ. We saw His deity. We understand Him as both man and God. This testimony was written down. It was taken seriously by those in that first century. It was put down for people to read. It was repeated. It was copied over and over. Even in the years of the apostles' lives, that first century, this story was repeated and written down and told over and over and over, always getting validation, never obstructed, never uh, uh, negated. They never retracted. They never recanted. And like I said a minute ago, they end up dying for this very truth. Within a few centuries, there were not just one or two or a couple hundred, there are tens of thousands of manuscripts. In fact, you could say it something like this, the existence and the person, the dual nature of Christ as divine and human is the most testified thing in human history. We have nothing that has more evidence than the person of Christ. There are tens of thousands of manuscripts. Archaeologists have dug these up, and over and over again, it says the same thing. 
it tells us that Jesus is indeed the Word become flesh. John the Apostle with the other apostles are witnessing to this divine incarnation. Now, who else does John bring to the witness stand? Well, that's none other than the man we met before, John the Baptist. This man, as we talked about, I won't go through all the stuff we talked about a few weeks ago, but this man in Jewish history is sort of like Honest Abe. He's the most honest, most trustworthy witness. You have to get in your mind, you know, there were prophets, there were kings, there were people who prophesied and did things. But there was no one ever like John the Baptist. Thousands of people would leave the cities and flock to him around the Jordan River. This was, a, this was a brilliant man. This was a man who was seen by not just his friends, but his enemies as someone who told the truth. Someone who eventually also died for what he spoke. And you can name a lot of good people in the Old Testament, a lot of amazing prophets who did amazing wonders and amazing things, but it seems like none were so popular and so trusted as John the Baptist. What John the Apostle is doing is saying, along with the eyewitnesses to the transfiguration, along with those of us who lived and walked and talked and testified to Jesus, His person and His deity, the most important, the most reliable, the most trusted man of all time, John the Baptist, testifies to the same. Verse 15, ESV has it in parentheses. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because, why? He was before me. Jesus was younger in human years than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist knows this man is God incarnate. Well, all this to say, we have fact number one, that Jesus is the incarnated second person of the Trinity. And number two, that this fact is validated in the best way possible. Sworn witnesses, multiple witnesses, signed testimony that is validated over and over again. What is the validation that he gives us in terms of information is that Jesus is the incarnated, divine, second person of the Trinity, that his glory, his sonship, it all came to them in grace and truth. Now, when he says that, it came to us in grace and truth, what is he telling us? Well, he's telling us about the results of these truths, these facts. So that takes us to the second part of my sermon, second pair of points. Number three, result, which is result number one, we receive grace upon grace. Jesus comes with grace and truth. We receive grace upon grace. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. His fullness meaning his full deity. We have received grace upon grace from the second person of the Trinity, from he who is God incarnate, who is life-breathing and light-giving. What has he brought us? He has brought us grace upon grace. Grace multiplied by grace multiplied by grace. Is that true for you? No Christian would say otherwise. Beginning with salvation, right? You just see grace after grace after grace after grace. Even if your life is troubled, even if your life is hard, even if things are difficult, that's what you see in salvation. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It just multiplies as life goes on. Jesus 
gives us this grace. It's gives, it comes to us more and more. Verse 17, Jesus gives us the basic, or John gives you the basic discontinuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Did you see that? No doubt there's continuity between the Testaments. But there's also discontinuity. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know he was Jesus. The Old Testament saints did have faith in Christ. This is the continuity of the new and old. They had faith in Christ. They didn't know his name, but they trusted in the promise that God had given. They believed in the word of God. That ultimately is a definition of faith, taking God at his word, believing it, trusting it, resting your life in it, changing your lifestyle. That's repentance. That's that real faith. That's what the Old Testament saints did, though they didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't know the story that we know. So that's what ties us with them. But Jesus, on multiple occasions in his ministry, had to remind them not just of the continuity of the testaments, of the covenants, but of the discontinuity between the covenants. In fact, you could say this is a, a theme of Jesus' teaching. They're coming into the new covenant era. A whole series of parables about the old and the new. Old wine, new wineskins. And what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the old is bad or should be cast aside as completely useless or arbitrary. No way. The great kings and prophets and priests sang about the law. They sang about truth. They sang about God's righteousness. And we can learn all about what God did leading up to the arrival of His Son. They rejoiced in the law of God, and we can too. So it can't mean something negative about the old, what John says here about Moses and the law, that he came to abolish it, meaning to make it useless or worthless. And that's what Jesus said. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I think of it like your mother sitting in the passenger seat while you drive around with your permit. There she is, instructing you, showing you, teaching you. At some point, that comes to an end. And a new day is dawned. And you can drive with freedom and joy all by yourself. The way we did it growing up in Oklahoma is you would, uh, the day you turned 16, your mom would drive you to the test that morning, first thing in the morning, even if it was a school day. You would take your test. Ostensibly, you would pass your test. Then you would drive your mom home, and you would drive to school by yourself. That's what everyone did. You don't do it that way here. But the freedom and joy I had as I drove on my way to school all by myself, it's a new day. It's a new covenant has dawned in my heart. <laughs> That's what's going on. There's a new day. It's not that the old is purposeless or meaningless or has no value whatsoever. All those instructions are helpful and guide us to right driving. Now, this is what Jesus is, or what John is saying about the new day. The new covenant, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. All that was promised is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, what is that grace? One result of the incarnation is that we learn of this new covenant. In this new covenant, by gazing upon Christ, by believing in Christ, we actually see God. And that is result number two. We see God. We'll finish here.
No one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Just stop right there. You can't get away from Jesus' deity right there, right? Jesus is the only God, but he's also at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, God, known. We can't see him in full. We can't see him in person yet. But he has nonetheless been made known so that we can, at least in part, see him by gazing upon Christ. So Jesus' goal is to bring into union humanity with God. And God does this by opening our spiritual eyes so we can see him as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe the validated testimony. We take God at his word. Faith is not believing something illogical or irrational or stupid or some sort of uh, fairy tale. It's by believing historical truth and resting our lives in it, arranging, rearranging our lives around this one central historical fact that God has come in flesh. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, has arrived. And He has come as fulfillment of the law. He's come as fulfillment to all that was spoken of before. He's come so that we could see God. He really is Emmanuel, God with us. And He would live, John is going to prove, He would live a perfect life and die an atoning death, raise up victorious over sin and death, and He would ascend back to His throne, having conquered death and sin. If you believe this, you will see God. I have a mind that there are a number of people in this room, and you've been around religion. Maybe you've been around the gospel enough to intellectually believe it, but you've never seen God. Spiritually, you need to be awakened. And maybe this Christmas, maybe even as I say these words, your heart is awakening. The scales of those dead eyes are falling off. And for the first time, you're seeing God. Let's pray God would grant you that miracle. Father, we do pray that you'd grant us this miracle even at Christmas. Lord, we pray that dead souls will be raised to light and life, and they would see God. I pray that you would bless us this Christmas. We'd remember you in all things that we do. Lord, even though we're with family and opening presents and doing all kinds of things that maybe aren't central to the message of the gospel, Lord, may we be, we be constantly reminded the whole reason that we're doing this is in celebration of the fact that the Word became flesh. Lord, we pray that we could honor you in this way. We pray especially for those who have not yet seen. Lord, open their eyes that they would see your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand up with me. We'll have a benediction. And after that, you can be dismissed. Now may we go from this place rejoicing that the Word has come in flesh. And because of His work, we have the spirit of truth, purity, and humility. And so we can see God. Amen. Amen.